everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. By the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. And by EFG Hermes, the leading financial services corporation in frontier emerging markets, helping businesses realize their full growth potential. Your host today is Patrick, Enterprise's Editor-in-Chief. Today's episode is all about transformation. It's about how you take a homegrown business that already has scale and turn it into a multinational without destroying the culture that made it special in the first place. Karim Awad is Group CEO of EFG Hermes. Many of you will know EFG as the top investment bank in MENA. And that's where it was when Kareem stepped behind the CEO's desk back in 2013. Kareem transformed the business on two fronts. First, he turned it into a financial services corporation right here in Egypt. He and the team acquired the country's leading private sector microfinance company. They launched a top five leasing business from scratch, and they created a consumer finance app that's now everywhere from Ikea to Tradeline to Carm Solar. Kareem also globalized the business, leading it into the frontier emerging markets that we at Enterprise love so much. Today, EFG is on the ground from Nigeria to Kenya, from the GCC to Pakistan, from Bangladesh to Vietnam. But it wasn't predestined. Kareem started at EFG as an analyst, and he rose to become the head of EFG's high-profile investment banking unit. When he took over as CEO in 2013, the firm, like a lot of businesses in Egypt, was still dealing with the fallout from the events of 2011. And the first thing he did in the job, it wasn't try to figure out how to build EFG Hermes 2.0, as he calls it. It was fighting a hostile takeover bid. Kareem spoke with us about all of this and more, including strategy, why the firm hires at the bottom of the pyramid and promotes from within, and why he loves the Showtime Lakers of the 1980s. Kareem Awad, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. Always a pleasure. All right, man. Listen, this is not uh, therapy for CEOs. Uh, this is in regression therapy. But we do want to start asking each one of our guests a really simple question. Sure. And that's, what toy or what game did you play with as a kid that was actually instrumental to your success in business? So uh, I grew up playing uh, basketball. It was a passion of mine uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, I still like to watch a lot. I don't play as uh, as I used to. Uh, you know, I got a bit older as well. I grew up actually watching the the Showtime Lakers of the eighties, no which way. was, uh, in my opinion, still one of the uh, game of the Jabbar, uh, yeah, Magic Johnson, James wow. Worthy, uh, one of the greatest teams ever, and the Showtime Lakers, as they called them. Absolutely. And then uh, in the nineties, of course, everyone became a Bulls fan. But uh, believe it or not, I was uh, a bigger fan of uh, Scottie Pippen uh, than of uh, Michael Jordan. No way. Uh, I always felt that, you know, and maybe this is uh, this is one of the things that I learned most uh, from playing basketball. And that is, uh, it's a team sport. You can't do anything on your own. Even Michael Jordan, who's the, the greatest ever to ever touch the ball, was uh, could not have done it without uh, Pippen and without the, the rest of the teams, uh, the teammates that he had. And I think this was uh, instrumental in my uh, thinking throughout that, you know, whether it's in uh, on the court or whether it's outside, uh, you do need the, uh, a good team. You, knew, you do need uh, good colleagues around you to help you out. Nice. So we're going to jump now to, to you and the business. 
you took over a business that was market leader in Egypt, reasonably well-established in GCC. And instead of doing the safe thing, the comfortable thing, which is protect your gains and grow where you're, you have a toehold, you've transformed it from a pure investment bank into a non-bank financial services corporation. You have grown into Nigeria. You've grown into Kenya, East Asia, Central Asia. You've opened offices in the US and the UK. That comes at the price of time away from family. That comes at the price of stress. Why? Why go for it at all? I think as a team, when, uh, you know, when we took over in uh, late 2013, we were all very hungry. Our level of satisfaction was and still remains uh, quite low. We always want to see where we can take the business next. We felt uh, that uh, our predecessors had set uh, a very nice uh, platform uh, for us. Uh, they had expanded into the GCC, planted flags in, in the right places. We felt that we needed to concentrate on two aspects. One, build our market share in the places where we have planted flags. So not just be present there, but be actively present, whether it's in the UAE or in uh, Saudi Arabia. But also we started feeling that there is room to grow outside. So we started off with Pakistan and because it was a natural expansion uh, for us. It was also about to get upgraded at that point of time to MSCI Emerging Markets uh, Index. And then we felt that we can grow into Sub-Sahara Africa and into other markets that our clients want and where competition, I wouldn't say remains low, but at the end of the day, our clients are not getting the services that they request over there. And so we felt there is a niche and then that we can fill that niche quite quickly. With regards to the uh, non-bank finance mm. business, we also wanted to make sure that we build a sustainable uh, business model, one that continues to deliver on revenues and on dividends and profits for our shareholders on an annual basis. To smooth out the earnings. To smooth out the earnings, regardless mm. of the volatility of the capital markets that we operate in. And uh, we started that off with leasing. Again, it was a natural uh, expansion for us. We are very good uh, corporate uh, investment bank. So leasing uh, figures very nicely into that. Then we followed that up with uh, Tenmea in 2016, uh, Egypt's uh, leading private sector microfinance house. And then more projects, whether it's in mortgages, consumer finance or uh, factoring. This is a business that we have very uh, big hopes for and we think it can continue to grow in the near future. Where did the playbook come from? How do you as a leader sit down to come up with a strategy like that? I mean, are you a whiteboard guy? Do you research to go on a nice vacation and come back with a clear head? You know, where does it come from? I actually find that I, uh, I think uh, most of the time about the business uh, when uh, I'm at home. You know, when you're at the office, uh, there are uh, so many things that are happening, so many issues to take care of. Uh, you actually need some time alone. But believe it or not, when we started out in 2013, it wasn't really about building the strategy. It was about more about fighting fires. Yeah. It was at a very tough period for the company. And we wanted to make sure that we cut our expenses, we streamlined the business, we returned some cash to our shareholders through selling non-core assets. And then once we got done with that portion, we started thinking about what is next? How can we build our strategy? I remember sitting with uh, someone that I have a lot of respect for in 2012, 2013. And he told me, what is your vision for EFGRMS 2.0? And I went back 2 home. 2.0, I like that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I just saw him actually a month back and he told me, I think, I guess you're on version 3.0. 3.0, yeah. And I actually, I think for us as a team, we really feel good, good about that. And when I went back, I thought about it. What are we going to do? How are we going to create 2.0? And I thought we had the banking uh, in Lebanon. 
and it no longer made sense for us as good as a bank as it was. And we thought, now let us sell the bank, use the cash to redirect the business in a new direction. And we felt the one that can create the most synergies for us was through the MBFI. We had started out, and I think a lot of people don't remember that in 2014, we were looking at uh, one of the leading consumer finance players in Egypt. Uh, This was disclosed to the market. And unfortunately, it did not uh, work out. And from that point, we felt that the MBFI business is going to be the direction for the firm going forward. Okay. You talked a moment ago about, you know, 2013 sort of being the, the end of a darker period for you guys as a firm. And you've managed through everything from the market meltdown in 2008, global financial crisis, events of 2011, Islamist interregnum of 2012, 2013, you managed through a hostile takeover, in addition to the cyclicality of the business, right? Business is cyclical. Through all this turmoil, what's the one lesson that you've taken away? I think several ones, if I may, Patrick. I mean, one is, again, the importance of a team. We have, we are blessed as a firm to have a really good senior management team. And all of these guys are extremely committed to the firm. We've all grown in that firm. And I mean, we, most of us, most of the senior management team uh, joined the firm in their 20s and now we're in our mid 40s and uh, we still uh, love uh, what we do and we love EFG RMS and we want to take it further. And I think in 2013, had it not been for the great team that we had at EFG, I don't think that we would have uh, pulled through. The other thing is perseverance. If you're not going to persevere through darker times, then you're not uh, good enough to be in that business. Hmm. It is a volatile business. It is a tough business for sure. And you need a lot of perseverance. You need a lot of focus on a daily basis to get through some tough times. Okay. You started speaking about your team. And I was chatting with Asina Baza from CIB the other day, and I told him you were coming on the show. And he said he had a question he'd like you to address. How did you change the culture at EFG? I'm going to say this in my words, not Hussein's. I want to be really clear about that. When we first met you guys 12, 13 years ago now, you were known as a high performance culture, but a very tough culture in which to do business and not necessarily a friendly organization. And from the outside, at least, you're still high performance, but you're a heck of a lot more fun to do business with, to talk to, to work with on a daily basis. How did that change happen? Well, that's very kind of you and very kind of uh, Hassin to ask that question. Hassin is uh, is the guy who taught me a big portion of what we know about finance. All of most of the the EFG MS employees actually uh, he taught us within the investment banking course uh, way back. So I think you need to lead by example. At the end of the day, I think that uh, as an organization, we need to be high performance. Mm-hmm. We need to be uh, to push. We need to stay on our toes. And I expect the team to deliver on uh, on on results on an annual basis, just as my board and the shareholders expect us to do so. But at the end of the day, that does not mean that we cannot do it with a little bit of fun, a little bit of joking around every now and then, humility, making sure that everyone within the firm, whether it is the youngest guy or the most senior guys are treated with the right level of respect. I don't think that this is binary. I don't think that, you know, you can either do uh, be uh, be high performance and unfriendly mm-hmm. or uh, be low performance and very friendly. I think you can do both. You can be nice people and you can still be high performance. And I think this is the right culture for EFG. And I think this is the way we can retain our people, which are not only our most important asset, they are the asset of the firm today. I was chatting with Ahmed Hegel a few years back and I asked him, do you miss the days of EFG? Do you miss investment banking? 
And he said, listen, I never again want to be in an industry where my assets come in the elevator in the morning and go back out in the afternoon. Uh, that is uh, definitely a fear that we have. And I'll tell you, I mean, from we have what we call six uh, strategic pillars that we operate on. And the first one of those, we call them the six piece. Mm -hmm. And the first one and the most important one for me is people. You need to hire the best people. You need to retain the best people. You need to motivate the best people. Because in all honesty, in a business that is based on minds and intellect, this is the only asset that you have. If we don't have a really good team that is motivated and that can perform and that can come up with ideas on a daily basis, this firm will not be high performance. Mm. You can teach how to do evaluation. You can teach a methodology. But how do you teach decency and empathy? I think one of the things is, you know, we try to hire at the bottom, promote from within. Mm. And that culture gets disseminated from one uh, generation to the next. And this is quite uh, important. And I think if every head of department, if employees within every department see the head of department operating in a certain manner and that certain unacceptable behavior remains to be unacceptable, this does help uh, in creating the right culture for the firm hmm. and helps preserve it uh, from one generation to the next. Okay. You talked about hiring at the bottom, and it's something that we admire about you guys, bluntly. But you really hire at the bottom and promote from within. I mean, the current head of Sellside is a guy who started as a yes. trader. I mean, your uh, successor as head of investment banking when you became CEO started as an analyst. The two co-heads of IB today, I think, both started as yes. analysts. Shams in research started at the bottom. So head of department by head of department, Wally, all of them, these are guys who came up through the ranks. Okay. Yes. How do you avoid groupthink when you all share the same formative experiences? Look, I will not uh, sit there and lie and, uh, and tell you that, uh, no, we, uh, we avoid it. Of course, we do fall into that trap because we mm -hmm. all came up within, within the same firm, the same culture. But I think as the firm grew, there were certain new aspects of the business and certain new products that needed people from outside. So uh, just to give you an example, when we started uh, to expand into frontier, into Pakistan, into Nigeria, into Bangladesh, we realized from the get-go that we don't have the know-how to do this on our own sure. and that we needed a team. And this is why we started hiring an entire team, whether it's on as the CEO for, of Frontier and Ali Kalpi or uh, research guys or sales guys, just to make sure that they bring in a different perspective. Because if we had taken our own perspective into East Asia, for example, I don't think it would have worked. Same thing happened when we started the MBFI. As it grew, mm -hmm. we felt that we needed someone from outside who can also bring in the proper culture, the proper know-how. This is why we hired Walid Hassouna, for example. These are all important guys. I think today, the mixture of having people that have been around for such a long time, like uh, Mohammed Abed or for like uh, Karim Musa, who heads our uh, our um, buy side business, to go or uh, Mohammed Wakil on on the operations, operations side, yeah. or Inji on the on the HR side, or Abdul Wahab on on the compliance and risk, which is very important, to go along with uh, with newcomers to the firm like Walid Hassouna, people that we've moved also around from the firm. So we have our CFO who has grown up from within investment banking. Mohammed who has moved into the CFO role as well. So having all those different cultures and different perspectives helps the firm to grow and move in the right direction. MediaNet is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt.
Okay. You mentioned a moment ago, Ali, Cato, you know, the folks who came over as more senior hires, Walid Hasuna, to run a new piece of the business. But previously, the firm had tried that and it hadn't worked out. Yes. Yet you've had a good run of luck with it. What's changed? What's different? Is it your process? Is it how you choose people? Why are these guys working out so well, whereas others hadn't before? So I think when we picked them, and I mean, I have to give credit where credit is due. So when the hire for uh, Ali Kalpi was done predominantly by uh, by Abid, he contacted him at the beginning and he felt that he was the right guy for the job. Walid was uh, my hire more than anyone else's. And I think with every hire that we do at the senior level, what we're trying to do is to make sure that these guys that are joining the firm are hungry. We don't want anyone to come in and uh, feel relaxed. They're joining at a senior position. They can boss people around and do very little. In all honesty, we can't afford that. We need people that want to work, want to work hard, want to create something new for themselves as well as for the firm. I don't think that these are necessarily misaligned. Uh, You can create a name for yourself in the business while making sure that you are creating a legacy for the business for the business itself yeah absolutely so we made a conscious decision that we would still rather hire at the bottom promote from within and move people from within so again an example is our cfo Mohammed abdel khabir moving in from investment banking or mustafa shayati moving from investment banking to our office in dubai but at the end of the day if we hire people from outside they need to be hungry and they need to adapt to the culture that we are in we are high performance we have shareholders we have a demanding board and if you're not going to deliver you don't have a place within the firm. Is it harder today to hire a young person to work as an investment banker when everybody and his brother or sister wants to go start a startup or work for a startup and sit in a beanbag chair? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the times have changed. In the, in the 90s, you guys were it, man. Yes. 90s, early 2000s, everybody <laughs> wanted to be an investment banker. And now, you know... Uh, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur today. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, that is completely understandable. Times have changed. And we do see that when uh, when we make our hires uh, today. But I think we are continue to be lucky enough to attract some very good calibers. I mean, I look at some of the investment bankers uh, that we hired in our last class. And they are all super people. They are committed. They work 16, 17 hours a day and they don't complain. They come, they work on the weekends. They want to learn. So I think while you will find a lot of entrepreneurs coming out of school, wanting to do their own thing, which is great in, in all honesty, because the country needs more people like that. But you still find the investment bankers who want to come in, learn, put in the hours and then learn a bit and maybe start their business afterwards. Okay. How do you deal with the fact that hiring somebody at the bottom and working them up through the ranks is a much slower process than bringing somebody in from the outside? I think we're very patient. Uh, Again, I I go back to uh, one of our pillars being, uh, first pillar being uh, people. We want to invest in our people. We want to make sure that they are stay. We want to make sure that they are long-term asset for the firm. As a management team, as a senior management team, we look that our success will start when we actually leave the firm. We want to make sure that the firm is sustainable. So we want to invest in our people. We want to make sure that they're there. They're there for a long, for the long term, that they learn, that they enjoy their job. But at the end of the day, we also want to make sure that we're creating a new generation of management for EFGRMS to make sure that the business is sustainable and outlives any person. Nice. Do you have an ego? 
I'm sure I do a yeah. little bit, yeah. but I try to keep it in check. Okay. I sincerely believe that, you know, everyone is dispensable. And if you're not going to work hard and if you're not going to put in the effort on a daily basis, then you don't deserve to be in the place you're in. So I, this is how I try to keep my ego in check, but in I'm check. sure I do. Okay. How in a business full of people who have egos and high <laughs> expectations, right? And the climate, the climate is super competitive. Yes. How do you retain these people for the long term? How do you convince them that, you know, you kid stick around and you're a future managing director, you're a future head of a division? I think by seeing the track record, right? I'm a person who started at EFG in 1999 as an associate in investment banking, worked my way up. I was lucky for sure to be where I am today. And they see that this happened to me. They see that in the head of investment banking, they see that in the head of sell side in Ibid. They see that in Mustafa Gad and Mohammed Fahmi and all of these guys. And I think this gives them the right motivation, the right hope for their future. We are also lucky, like CIB to a large extent, that there are shareholders within the firm that trust outside management. And this is a plus for in hiring people as well. I was going to ask you whether you guys track turnover of your people. But I think maybe a more interesting question is, what are the five numbers that matter to you most as CEO that tell you about the health of your business? So yes, we do track turnover. I get a monthly report from from HR with the number of hires, those have left, those that are regretted, those that are not regretted, credit goes to NG and uh, and that part. And it is something that we track uh, very well. I would be lying if I tell you that uh, one of the most important numbers that I do track is not profitability, right? Because at the end of the day, again, it is a publicly listed company. Our shareholders do have certain expectations. We also are covered by analysts who have certain forecasts for the business that you need to meet. So I think I look at not only profitability, but our return on equity, which is um, the most important metric for a business of our nature. And this is another thing. We track compensation, compensation to revenues to make sure that it is in line with global metrics as well. Strike a balance between making sure that our people are paid well, but our shareholders' interests are also uh, well protected. So these are numbers that I look at very carefully. Do you ever wish that you didn't run a publicly traded company, that you could take it private and run it behind closed doors? I think there are pros and cons to being public. And I think, mind you, I am an investment banker, so my background will always tell you how public <laughs> you public wanna, is. You want to take it public, right? <laughs> get the fee. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I do think that there are a lot of benefits. First of all, it does keep you on your toes to make sure that track the share price, you see where it is going. You make sure that the shareholders' interests are well protected on a daily basis. You make sure that you're working for the benefit of every single shareholder within the company. And I think this is uh, very important. The downside of it is definitely uh, the quarterly reporting. And this is something that is global today that a lot of people are talking about. It does put you under pressure, especially in a business like ours that suffers from market volatility. So you might have one quarter where, uh, for example, the investment banking division did not close enough deals and therefore the profits overall are falling. Next quarter, we have a bonanza of deals and then the quarter is much better. So that puts you under pressure as management in general, delivering every quarter. What's interesting about you guys is that you're building out a long-term play. You're moving into Africa, you're moving into Central Asia, you're moving into East Asia, you're building out a non-bank financial services platform. All of that speaks against short-termism, yes. but you have to report quarterly. Yes. So how do you keep the investors' expectations in line? 
market expectations in line? It's difficult for sure, uh, because whether it is the board or the shareholders, they do expect you to deliver a certain level of growth on a quarterly basis. However, while we try to do that, we're also more interested in building a sustainable business model for the long term. We could have chosen an easier route than to rebuild the business, refocus it and all of that. We could have stayed in our status quo. We had the bank, it used to deliver every year, nice dollar profits, nice dividend stream and so on. But we felt that this was not in the best interest of our shareholders on the long term. We could have chosen not to launch value, for example, which at this stage is still Values your consumer finance. Our consumer finance business, which is this stage is still ramping up, right? But at the end of the day, do we feel that in three to five years, this is going to be in the best interest of our shareholders? Absolutely. And this is why we continue to push on that front. Even if the short term does not live up to everyone's expectations, we believe the long term will. All right. Let's talk about complexity yeah. for a second. Because this is something that we grapple with. You know, once upon a time, we were three, four or five people. Today, we're almost 70 people between our parent company and enterprise. I used to be able to open the door, yell staff meeting, and all five people will be in front of my door in 15 seconds and we have a staff meeting. It's a lot more complicated for us today. We have people in different countries. We have people on different floors. And our problem pales in comparison to what you guys have, managing time zones, managing different businesses, managing different types of people. How do you keep everyone pulling in the same direction and focused on the same goals when you span that many time zones, that many countries, that many lines of business? So uh, I think it was uh, three, three and a half years ago, we did a massive organizational reshuffle. And the reason is at that point of time, I had, I think, 20 or 21 people reporting directly to me, which I thought... 21 people? Yes, which I thought was completely... Uh, inefficient insane not not just from my time but i think for the business it wasn't good so we said at that point of time let us reorganize the firm let us put all the buy side business under karim musa make sure that he handles asset management and that he handles uh, private equity let us put all of the sell side business under Mohammed abid investment banking brokerage research as well as some of the new products structure products uh, fixed income and others let us put every all the mbfis under walid hassuna let us put all of the operations that service everyone, whether it's MBFI or the uh, investment bank under Mohammed Wakil, bring all of the HR under uh, Inji Abdun and bring all of the finance functions under uh, Mohammed Abdel Khabir and bring all of the compliance risk and legal uh, functions under Abdel Wahab. And at that point of time, I felt that, you know, we're eight people that can sit on the executive committee, discuss where we want to go discuss the messages that we want to, to disseminate, whether to the different product lines or to the different, different places that we're present in today. And that was the only way that we can manage the growth that we have, uh, that we have experienced over the past three, three and a half years. How do you plan for, for the future? How do you plan the business going forward? What's the process? Not what is your plan, but how do you actually plan? Very difficult. Mm. And I'll tell you why, because some of the businesses you actually have to be unfortunately reactive as opposed to proactive in them. Changes are so many, not only regulatory, but the changes in the market, the market conditions and so on. You, you think you have 10 IPOs and you, you end up making one, yeah. right? And because the markets are not there. So 
actually another one of my clients told me a good maybe six, seven years ago is you can control your costs. This is the only thing that you have actual control over. So whenever we do our budget, our biggest focus is on our expenses. How do we control our expenses? Do we actually need all those expenses or can we make cuts uh, somewhere or another? And the revenues, we definitely do make our plans. We build up our pipeline. We know where we're going in market share. But at the end of the day, we need to be flexible and we need to be agile when it comes to differences in revenues than what we were expecting. Now, the MBFI business was one of the reasons we started that because this business, we can actually project. We know where it is going. It is less volatile. We know that we can grow by a certain number every year. And this is what we can communicate to our board and to our investor base. But on the investment bank side, it becomes trickier. And this is where we want to make sure that the costs is what we control more. Do you have a five-year plan? In my opinion, five-year plans are... Uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit status. Yeah, I mean, it's too far into the future. Yeah. And in the region that we operate in, I mean, uh, yes, I can put a five-year plan. At the end of the day, I'm a banker. So I built a lot of uh, five-year business, <laughs> five-year business plans, plans in my life. But at the end of the day, we do have a three-year business plan that I think it's ending in 2020. Okay. And we're going to renew it at the end of 2020 for the following three years. Unlike many CEOs in Egypt today at your level, running publicly traded companies, you didn't take a business that you founded, grow it, IPO it, and continue to run it. If you look at Hint Shrbini, if you look at Rauf Khabur, you can go down the list, Al-Kalla, Wasira. These are all people who sort of have very large personal stakes in the business and who created the business from scratch or who inherited a family business that they took to the next level. You have a board of directors, pretty large board of directors, majority non-execs, majority independent, right? Yes. How do you manage that complexity? Or do you even agree it is complex? It does have its uh, challenges for sure. But I also look at our board as an extremely important component of the success of the business. These are ladies and gentlemen that have mm-hmm. a great experience because, uh, as you know, our chairperson is uh, is Mona Zulfunkar. And we have actually another board member uh, representing R.A. Mina uh, Liz Critchley, who is also a lady that has joined us at the beginning of this year. So these are guys that have a lot of experience and add a lot of value. While we as Bankers usually think that we know it all mm-hmm. and we normally do, but <laughs> but at the end of the day, having the board as a sounding board to challenge us, to make sure that we're on the right track, to tell us that sometimes what we are proposing doesn't really work for certain reasons. This is very important because in a company like ours that has such a very large free float, you need the board to make sure that, again, the interests of the shareholders are being well protected, that the board works for all the shareholders and that the management stays in line. I would say that it has its complexity. I think it is very important for a company like EFG. Do we care too much about shareholders and not enough about all stakeholders? I know that this is an argument that is uh, going on uh, globally today. And I think, you know, for uh, and credit here goes to the firm well before I I took over as a CEO is that we always try to make sure that we care about all our stakeholders. Definitely, we do work for our shareholders at the end of the day. And this is something that we have to keep in mind on a daily basis. I would also like to 
point a lot to the work that our foundation does for example the uh, you know um, we are we have a foundation that is headed by a lovely lady called Hana Hilmi who has been renovating villages uh, across Egypt for the past 10 years I think we're finishing our third village uh, today so these are part of the stakeholders that we care about so it's not only our about our shareholders actually one of the six pieces that I talk about the last one of them is that we need to do everything within a proper public responsibility point of view and so we do care about our stakeholders but definitely I would be a complete liar if I if I tell you that our main focus on a daily basis is not our the shareholders Damn. We're asking everybody who comes on, whether they run a publicly traded company or privately held company, why should an investor buy one share of your firm? What's the investment thesis? What's the equity story for you guys? We are a financial solutions firm. We have moved from an investment bank into a financial solutions firm that is targeting to be the number one financial solutions firm across the region that we operate in. So I believe that EFGRMS offers investors today a one-stop financial solutions firm where synergies are going to be created and are already being created between different business lines. Um, I do believe that today we have the right geographical presence. We have the right product base. We have the increasing growth and profitability that is uh, required. We have the people to manage the firm that are in place. And we have set our firm on course to become bigger and stronger and more sustainable uh, with a strong business model. And I do believe that within the next three to four years, you will find a lot of synergies that are being created and that we're seeing the first green shoots of uh, today between the leasing business, between the investment bank business, between the retail brokerage business and our consumer finance business. And I do imagine that one day a client, whether it's a corporate or a high net worth or it's a retail client, will look at EFG and go like, this is the one-stop shop for most of my financial solutions that are needed. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit@enterprise.press. That's makingit@enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. Next week's episode will be out on Friday at 8 a.m. This season is brought to you by CIB, USAID, and EFG Hermes. And that's how we're making it.